Part Seven of Paul and Virginia. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Alice Christophe. Paul and Virginia by Bernardin de Saint Pierre. Part Seven. I thus passed my days far from mankind, whom I wished to serve, and by whom I have been persecuted. After having travelled over many countries of Europe, and some parts of America and Africa, I at length pitched my tent in this thinly peopled island, allured by its mild climate and its solitudes. A cottage which I built in the woods, at the foot of a tree, a little field which I cleared with my own hands, a river which glides before my door, suffice for my wants and for my pleasures. I blend with these enjoyments the perusal of some chosen books, which teach me to become better. They make that world which I have abandoned still contribute something to my happiness. They lay before me pictures of those passions which render its inhabitants so miserable. And in the comparison I am thus led to make between their lot and my own, I feel a kind of negative enjoyment. Like a man saved from shipwreck and thrown upon a rock, I contemplate, from my solitude, the storms which rage through the rest of the world and my repose seems more profound from the distant sound of the tempest. As men have ceased to fall in my way, I no longer view them with aversion, I only pity them. If I sometimes fall in with an unfortunate being, I try to help him by my counsels, as a passer-by on the brink of a torrent extends his hand to save a wretch from drowning. But I have hardly ever found any but the innocent attentive to my voice. Nature calls the majority of men to hear in vain. Each of them forms an image of her for himself, and invests her in his own passions. He pursues during the whole of his life this vain phantom, which leads him astray. And he afterwards complains to heaven of the misfortunes which he has thus created for himself. Among the many children of misfortune whom I have endeavoured to lead back to the enjoyments of nature, I have not found one but was intoxicated with his own miseries. They have listened to me at first with attention, in the hope that I could teach them how to acquire glory or fortune. But when they found that I only wished to instruct them how to dispense with these chimeras, their attention has been converted into pity, because I did not prize their miserable happiness. They blamed my solitary life. They alleged that they alone were useful to men, and they endeavoured to draw me into their vortex. But if I communicate with all, I lay myself open to none. It is often sufficient for me to serve as a lesson to myself. In my present tranquillity, I pass in review the agitating pursuits of my past life, to which I formerly attached so much value, patronage, fortune, reputation, pleasure and the opinions which are ever at strife over all the earth. I compare the men whom I have seen disputing furiously over these vanities, and who are no more to the tiny waves of my rivulet, which break in foam against its rocky bed, and disappear, never to return. As for me, I suffer myself to float calmly down the stream of time to the shoreless ocean of futurity, while, in the contemplation of the present harmony of nature, I elevate my soul towards its supreme author, and hope for a more happy lot in another state of existence. 
although you cannot describe from my hermitage, situated in the midst of a forest, that immense variety of objects which this elevated spot presents, the grounds are disposed with peculiar beauty, at least to one who, like me, prefers the seclusion of a home scene to great and extensive prospects. The river which glides before my door passes in a straight line across the woods, looking like a long canal shaded by all kinds of trees. Among them are the gum tree, the ebony tree, and that which is here called bois de pomme, with olive and cinnamon wood trees, while in some parts the cabbage palm trees raise their naked stems more than a hundred feet high, their summits crowned with a cluster of leaves, and towering above the woods like one forest piled upon another. Lianas, of various foliage, intertwining themselves among the trees, form here arcades of foliage, there long canopies of verdure. Most of these trees shed aromatic odours so powerful that the garments of a traveller who has passed through the forest often retain for hours the most delicious fragrance. In the season when they produce their lavish blossoms, they appear as if half covered with snow. Towards the end of summer, various kinds of foreign birds hasten, impelled by some inexplicable instinct, from unknown regions on the other side of immense oceans to feed upon the grain and other vegetable productions of the island. And the brilliancy of their plumage forms a striking contrast to the more sombre tints of the foliage embrowned by the sun. Among these are various kinds of paraquets, like the blue pigeon, called here the pigeon of Holland. Monkeys, the domestic inhabitants of our forests, sport upon the dark branches of the trees, from which they are easily distinguished by their grey and greenish skin and their black visages. Some hang suspended by the tail and swing themselves in air. Others leap from branch to branch, bearing their young in their arms. The murderer's gun has never affrighted these peaceful children of nature. You hear nothing but sounds of joy, the warblings and unknown notes of birds from the countries of the south, repeated from a distance by the echoes of the forest. The river, which pours in foaming eddies over a bed of rocks, through the midst of the woods, reflects here and there upon its limpid waters their venerable masses of verdure and of shade, along with the sports of their happy inhabitants. About a thousand paces from thence it forms several cascades, clear as crystal in their fall, but broken at the bottom into frothy surges. Innumerable confused sounds issue from these watery tumults, which, borne by the winds across the forest, now sink in distance, now all at once swell out, booming on the ear like the bells of a cathedral. The air, kept ever in motion by the running water, preserves upon the banks of the river, amid all the summer heats, a freshness and verdure rarely found in this island, even on the summits of the mountains. At some distance from this place is a rock, placed far enough from the cascade, to prevent the ear from being deafened with the noise of its waters, and sufficiently near for the enjoyment of seeing it, of feeling its coolness, and hearing its gentle murmurs. Thither, amidst the heats of summer, Madame de la Tour, Margaret, Virginia, Paul, and myself sometimes repaired, to dine beneath the shadow of this rock. Virginia, who always, 
in her most ordinary actions was mindful of the good of others, never at of any fruit in the fields, without planting the seed or kernel in the ground. From this, said she, trees will come, which will yield their fruit to some traveller, or at least to some bird. One day, having eaten of the purple fruit at the foot of that rock, she planted the seeds on the spot. Soon after, several purple trees sprang up, among which was one with female blossoms, that is to say, a fruit-bearing tree. This tree, at the time of Virginia's departure, was scarcely as high as her knee, but, as it is a plant of rapid growth, in the course of two years it had gained the height of twenty feet, and the upper part of its stem was encircled by several rows of ripe fruit. Paul, wandering accidentally to the spot, was struck with delight at seeing this lofty tree, which had been planted by his beloved. But the emotion was transient, and instantly gave place to a deep melancholy, at this evidence of her long absence. The objects which are habitually before us do not bring to our minds an adequate idea of the rapidity of life. They decline insensibly with ourselves. But it is those we behold again that most powerfully impress us with the feeling of the swiftness with which the tide of life flows on. Paul was no less overwhelmed and affected at the sight of this great popo tree, loaded with fruit, than is the traveller when, after a long absence from his own country, he finds his contemporaries no more, but their children, whom he left at the breast, themselves now become fathers of families. Paul sometimes thought of cutting down the tree, which recalled too sensibly the distracting remembrance of Virginia's prolonged absence. At other times, contemplating it as a monument of her benevolence, he kissed its trunk, and apostrophized it in terms of the most passionate regret. Indeed, I have myself gazed upon it with more emotion and more veneration than upon the triumphal arches of Rome. May nature, which every day destroys the monuments of kingly ambition, multiply in our forests those which testify the benevolence of a poor young girl. At the foot of this popo tree I was always sure to meet with Paul when he came into our neighbourhood. One day I found him there absorbed in melancholy, and a conversation took place between us, which I will relate to you, if I do not weary too much by my long digressions. They are perhaps pardonable to my age, and to my last friendships. I will relate it to you in the form of a dialogue, that you may form some idea of the natural good sense of this young man. You will easily distinguish the speakers, from the character of his questions and of my answers. Paul. I am very unhappy. Mademoiselle de la Tour has now been gone two years and eight months and a half. She is rich and I am poor. She has forgotten me. I have a great mind to follow her. I will go to France. I will serve the king. I will make my fortune. And then Mademoiselle de la Tour's aunt will bestow her niece upon me when I shall have become a great lord. The old man. But, my dear friend, have not you told me that you are not of noble birth? Paul. My mother has told me so, but, as for myself, I know not what noble birth means. I never perceived that I had less than others, or that others had more than I. The old man. 
Obscure birth, in France, shuts every door of access to great employments. Nor can you even be received among any distinguished body of men, if you labour under this disadvantage. Paul. You have often told me that it was one source of the greatness of France that her humblest subject might attain the highest honours, and you have cited to me many instances of celebrated men who, born in a mean condition, have conferred honour upon their country. It was your wish, then, by concealing the truth, to stimulate my ardour. The old man. Never, my son, would I lower it. I told you the truth with regard to the past. But now, everything has undergone a great change. Everything in France is now to be obtained by interest alone. Every place and employment is now become as it were the patrimony of a small number of families, or is divided among public bodies. The king is a son, and the nobles and great corporate bodies surround him like so many clouds. It is almost impossible for any of his race to reach you. Formerly, under less exclusive administrations, such phenomena have been seen. Then talents and merit show themselves everywhere, as newly cleared lands are always loaded with abundance. But great kings, who can really form a just estimate of men, and choose them with judgment, are rare. The ordinary race of monarchs allow themselves to be guided by the nobles and people who surround them. Paul but perhaps I shall find one of these nobles to protect me. The old man. To gain the protection of the great, you must lend yourself to their ambition, and administer to their pleasures. You would never succeed, for in addition to your obscure birth, you have too much integrity. Paul. But I will perform such courageous actions, I will be so faithful to my word, so exact in the performance of my duties, so zealous and so constant in my friendships, that I will render myself worthy to be adopted by some one of them. In the ancient histories you have made me read, I have seen many examples of such adoptions. The Old Man O oh, my young friend, among the Greeks and Romans, even in their decline, the nobles had some respect for virtue. But out of all the immense number of men sprung from the mass of the people in France, who have signalized themselves in every possible manner, I do not recollect a single instance of one being adopted by any great family. If it were not for our kings, virtue in our country would be eternally condemned as plebeian. As I said before, the monarch sometimes, when he perceives it, renders to it due honour. But in the present day, the distinctions which should be bestowed on merit are generally to be obtained by money alone. Paul. If I cannot find a nobleman to adopt me, I will seek to please some public body. I will espouse its interests and its opinions. I will make myself beloved by it. The old man. You will act then like other men? You will renounce your conscience to obtain a fortune? Paul. Oh no! I will never lend myself to anything but the truth. The old man. Instead of making yourself beloved, you would become an object of dislike. Besides, public bodies have never taken much interest in the discovery of truth. All opinions are nearly alike to ambitious men, provided only that they themselves can gain their ends. Paul. How unfortunate I am. Everything bars my progress. 
I am condemned to pass my life in ignoble toil, far from Virginia. As he said this, he sighed deeply. The old man. Let God be your patron, and mankind the public body you would serve. Be constantly attached to them both. Families, corporations, nations and kings have all of them their prejudices and their passions. It is often necessary to serve them by the practice of vice. God and mankind at large require only the exercise of the virtues. But why do you wish to be distinguished from other men? It is hardly a natural sentiment, for if all men possessed it, everyone would be at constant strife with his neighbour. Be satisfied with fulfilling your duty in the station in which Providence has placed you. Be grateful for your lot, which permits you to enjoy the blessing of a quiet conscience, and which does not compel you, like the great, to let your happiness rest on the opinion of the little, or, like the little, to cringe to the great, in order to obtain the means of existence. You are now placed in a country and a condition in which you are not reduced to deceive or flatter anyone, or debase yourself, as the greater part of those who seek their fortune in Europe are obliged to do, in which the exercise of no virtue is forbidden you, in which you may be, with impunity, good, sincere, well-informed, patient, temperate, chaste, indulgent to others' faults, pious, and no shaft of ridicule be aimed at you to destroy your wisdom, as yet only in its bud. Heaven has given you liberty, health, a good conscience and friends. Kings themselves, whose favour you desire, are not so happy. Paul. I, I only want to have Virginia with me. Without her I have nothing. With her I should possess all my desire. She alone is to me birth, glory and fortune. But since her relations will only give her to someone with a great name, I will study. By the aid of study and of books, learning and celebrity are to be attained. I will become a man of science. I will render my knowledge useful to the service of my country, without injuring any one or owing dependence on any one. I will become celebrated, and my glory shall be achieved only by myself. The Old Man My son, talents are a gift yet more rare than either birth or riches, and undoubtedly they are a greater good than either since they can never be taken away from us, and that they obtain for us everywhere public esteem. But they may be said to be worth all that they cost us. They are seldom acquired but by every species of privation, by the possession of exquisite sensibility, which often produces inward unhappiness, and which exposes us without to the malice and persecutions of our contemporaries. The lawyer envies not, in France, the glory of the soldier, nor does the soldier envy that of the naval officer. But they will all oppose you, and bar your progress to distinction, because your assumption of superior ability will wound the self-love of them all. You say that you will do good to men, but recollect that he who makes the earth produce a single ear of corn more renders them a greater service than he who writes a book. Paul. Oh, she then who planted this popo tree has made a more useful and more grateful present to the inhabitants of these forests than if she had given them a whole library. So saying, he threw his arms around the tree and kissed it with transport. 
The Old Man The best of books, that which preaches nothing but equality, brotherly love, charity and peace, the gospel, has served as a pretext during many centuries for Europeans to let loose all their fury. How many tyrannies, both public and private, are still practised in its name on the face of the earth? After this, who will dare to flatter himself that anything he can write will be of service to his fellow men? Remember the fate of most of the philosophers who have preached to them wisdom. Homer, who clothes it in such noble verse, asked for alms all his life. Socrates, whose conversation and example gave such admirable lessons to the Athenians, was sentenced by them to be poisoned. His sublime disciple Plato was delivered over to slavery by the order of the very prince who protected him. And before them, Pythagoras, whose humanity extended even to animals, was burnt alive by the Crotoniates. What do I say? Many even of these illustrious names have descended to us disfigured by some traits of satire, by which they became characterized, human ingratitude taking pleasure in thus recognizing them. And if in the crowd the glory of some names is come down to us without spot or blemish, we shall find that they who have borne them have lived far from the society of their contemporaries. Like those statues which are found entire beneath the soil in Greece and Italy, and which, by being hidden in the bosom of the earth, have escaped uninjured from the fury of the barbarians. You see, then, that to acquire the glory which a turbulent literary career can give you, you must not only be virtuous, but ready, if necessary, to sacrifice life itself. But, after all, do not fancy that the great in France trouble themselves about such glory as this. Little do they care for literary men, whose knowledge brings them neither honours, nor power, nor even admission at court. Persecution, it is true, is rarely practised in this age, but it is habitually indifferent to everything except wealth and luxury. But knowledge and virtue no longer lead to distinction, since everything in the state is to be purchased with money. Formerly, men of letters were certain of reward by some place in the church, the magistracy, or the administration. Now they are considered good for nothing but to write books. But this fruit of their minds, little valued by the world at large, is still worthy of its celestial origin. For these books is reserved the privilege of shedding lustre on obscure virtue, of consoling the unhappy, of enlightening nations, and of telling the truth even to kings. This is unquestionably the most august commission with which heaven can honour a mortal upon this earth. Where is the author who would not be consoled for the injustice or contempt of those who are the dispensers of the ordinary gifts of fortune, when he reflects that his work may pass from age to age, from nation to nation, opposing a barrier to error and to tyranny? And that, from amidst the obscurity in which he has lived, there will shine forth a glory which will efface that of the common herd of monarchs, the monuments of whose deeds perish in oblivion, notwithstanding the flatterers who erect and magnify them. Paul. Ah, I am only covetous of glory to bestow it on Virginia, and render her dear to the whole world. But can you, who know so much, tell me whether we shall ever be married? I should like to be a very learned man, if only for the sake of knowing what will come to pass. The old man. Who would live, my son, 
if the future were revealed to him. When a single anticipated misfortune gives us so much useless uneasiness, and the foreknowledge of one certain calamity is enough to embitter every day that precedes it, it is better not to pry too curiously, even into the things which surround us. Heaven, which has given us the power of reflection to foresee our necessities, gave us also those very necessities to set limits to its exercise. Paul, you tell me that with money people in Europe acquire dignities and honours. I will go, then, to enrich myself in Bengal, and afterwards proceed to Paris and marry Virginia. I will embark at once. The old man. What? Would you leave her mother and yours? Paul. Why, you yourself have advised my going to the Indies. The old man. Virginia was then here, but you are now the only means of support both of her mother and of your own. Paul. Virginia will assist them by means of her rich relation. The old man. The rich care little for those from whom no honour is reflected upon themselves in the world. Many of them have relations much more to be pitied than Madame de la Tour, who, for want of their assistance, sacrifice their liberty for bread, and pass their lives immured within the walls of a convent. Paul. Oh, what a country is Europe! Virginia must come back here. What need has she of a rich relation? She was so happy in these huts. She looked so beautiful and so well-dressed with a red handkerchief or a few flowers around her head. Return, Virginia, leave your sumptuous mansions and your grandeur, and come back to these rocks, to the shade of these woods, and of our cocoa trees. Alas, you are perhaps even now unhappy. And he began to shed tears. My father, continued he, hide nothing from me. If you cannot tell me whether I shall marry Virginia, tell me at least if she loves me still, surrounded as she is by noblemen who speak to the king and who go to see her. The old man. Oh, my dear friend, I am sure for many reasons that she loves you, but above all, because she is virtuous. At these words he threw himself on my neck in a transport of joy. End of part seven.